So a lot of the times you think that the work is done when the corporate development team exits the projects because they've closed it, all the papers have been signed, all the massive works has, has been done, but that's usually just the kickoff of the integration and making sure that they function great as a part of your holistic corporation. And usually the case is, is that a much larger corporation acquires much smaller company and integrating that smaller company to be a part of something larger. It's again, it's like if you worked at a company where there's a hundred employees and you go to a company that has 10,000 employees, everything is going to change. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. Hi, dear listeners. A quick disclaimer before you get into a special episode today about M&A. I'm taking a short break until mid-September to prepare a new exciting podcast series and a masterclass on change management. Because change has been a constant in the gaming industry, And keeping the focus on leadership themes, I will tackle with other game founders the topic of how to scale the studio and company culture, how to adapt your studio and leadership to market changes, how to level up your middle management layer as you scale, or for example, how do you set up your studio for success in a post-merger integration. So stay tuned for the upcoming series by signing up to riseandplay.io, and in the meantime, enjoy the upcoming episode. Have a great summer! Don't just see the future, know the future with today's sponsor, Solsten. They make it easy to identify how your audiences and players actually play and what keeps them coming back for more. In a previous life, I used Solsten Product Navigator for a game in soft launch and discovered that my audience was more complex than I thought. Instead of one homogeneous group, I was able to identify two unique persona, take a series of calculated risks in our game design and strike a balance between the two groups. Our approach shifted from making a game for everyone to creating a personal experience for our most valuable players. And we were able to put our resources and time to good use and launch our game with a high level of confidence in its success. Visit go.sourcen.io slash riseandplay, that's S-O-L-S-T-E-N, for a demo and receive 30% off your first Sourcen engagement crafted to your studio's needs. Learn why EA, Supercell, Wooga, and more use Sourcen to create the best human-centric gaming experiences possible. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to the Rise and Play <laughs> podcast. I'm your guest host, Mishka Katkov, and today... As always, <laughs> my guest is Sophie Vo, founder of Rise and Play, and we have a very interesting topic for y'all today. Sophie, what are we talking about? We're talking about M&A, and I, I'm kind of surprised that I ended up even making an episode about it because I try to stay as much as possible away from it where thinking, oh my God, it's like too much money conversation, corporate governance, I'm, I want to stay out of it. However, 
having been part of it throughout my career, I came to a point where I cannot discard it or ignore it. It's happening quite a lot in the gaming industry. It happens everywhere in all industry, and I want to understand more about it. So I'm super excited about, well, first of all, sharing some thoughts about it because I've been to online courses, you know, but also hearing <laughs> your experience. Okay, so well, talk, talk to me about a little bit about this class. So that is really the impetus of this podcast is you <laughs> went on a, on a university class to learn more about M&A. Yeah, so when I joined last October, Savage Games, Post-integration and acquisition from PlayStation, I, I wanted to understand more of the context. So it was a very complex environment, not to mention even like, you know, different platforms and so on. I found really a lack of understanding, like, why did this acquisition happen? Why acquisition happen? What are the expectations? What is the thing I can control or influence so I make the most of this post-integration, you know, and help the company after. So what are the things to watch? So using our educational budget that you remember we set in place during the early months in the company, I decided to use as, as well for myself and sign for the Imperial College uh, m and online course. So 13 weeks actually of program. So that was quite intense and at least five wow. to six hours of study per week. So I've done it. I finished it. I'm just waiting for my certification now. But what I found interesting was really to go through the past industries for the, I don't know, past 50, 60 years and across all industry and coming from pure bank investment, corporate finance, governance. And I really wanted to understand the big picture in industry, how m and work and understand, well, is it the same in games? And if not, why? And if we do things uh, well, so what are they that we could uh, keep uh, doing, right? So I just wanted to understand all that. And that's why now I have some knowledge, not all the knowledge, but I like to share and also confront it to the facts as well and what has happened in games. And then what was your previous experience with M&A before this Imperial College course? <laughs> well, I have been, so let me think like backward. At Voodoo, I was part of some conversation and due diligence conversation to acquire other studios, not really in depth. Uh, but for example, I was part of a team sourcing deals and companies that could be targets. So we were incentivized for that. And so for me, it was like, why is it the strategy of all game companies these days? Mm -hmm. Well, back to growth and we will talk about it. This is a, an effective way when done well to grow uh, sustainably. So I was involved in kind of M&A advising or sourcing. I have been involved, well, with Savage Games in a company being acquired. I haven't been involved really in acquiring, like being a company and really deep in the M&A process. So it's more either by being on the side or post-acquisition. What about you? Well, I think this is going to be interesting because I've been involved with all stages of or all sides of mergers and acquisitions. So being both being, first of all, on the acquirer side. So at Rovio, we acquired one studio uh, that actually joined the studio that I was running. But before you acquire one, you look at several. So a lot of due diligence processes from the acquirer side. I've been on the seller side being acquired. And again, negotiating with several partners and then landing with one. And I have also done M&A consulting. So many cases that didn't go through as always. And probably the, not probably, the biggest case that went through was the acquisition of Machine Zone. So Deconstructor Fund was together with Mr. Suford. We were helping Aplavin a few 
years back in, in closing that deal. So that was, I think that was like a 600 deal. So not actually Apple, when we were working with KKR. Anyhow, I've been on all the sites, but what I haven't done is I have zero reading, <laughs> learning, or anything. So all of my experience is purely empirical, and I don't have the sort of a, like a broad view of M&A apart from the courses that I've done in the business school, which when, when I was a child. <laughs> yes. And hence, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Or not a child, it's a teenager. So this is going to be an interesting co- conversation where I have empirical experience and you have theoretical experience. And Together, we know a lot, but as individual, we know only a half. <laughs> so this is going to be a... So don't don't quote us on this. We Neither of us works in corporate development. Yes. We're on the studio side, and we're just interesting people. Yeah. Uh, not interesting people. Uh, we're interested in this topic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like to believe that we can be somehow interesting. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's for me, it's important for anyone who want to keep growing in games to really understand why M&A uh, are a, a strategic direction. And mm-hmm. when, as you are part of it in some way, being the acquirer or the seller or post-integration, what can you do, right? Especially in a position yeah. of leadership. So that's how we converge from M&A to back to leadership and what can you do? So I'd like to start with the statistics of what I've learned in the class. And it was quite interesting numbers. Maybe you can compare those numbers with games if you have those. So in 2022, in M&A, uh, the value transaction was worth one to two trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's quite a lot. And I was reading in some games report, if you know have a number last year, do you know? I, I forgot, but it was like 2022, I think was hitting the peak with the Activision acquisition. Mm-hmm. I think it was marked for 2022, but it was a lot. It was enough to make the bankers a lot of money. Like they are the one that take a percentage out of this, not the lawyers, the bankers. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So there are deals in millions, mm-hmm. but billions yeah. as well, if you accumulate all the deals that have happened. Yes. But the other interesting statistic is that 70 to 90% of M&A failed to add value to the acquirer, if you look at it from that point of view, right? So mm-hmm. where we will have a conversation today is, well, not so much about the statistic, but the definition of failure to add value, because is this always about adding value to the acquirer? And that's kind of what I would like to maybe debunk a little bit today in our conversation. And before I ask you the question of your own observation based on your own experience and observation, I also learned from the course the top 10 reasons of why most MNA fail. And I can mm. actually categorize them in, in four points. The first one for category is uh, having a bad fit. A bad fit is where basically is like lack of strategic plan. So strategic fit, like not having a good why you acquire the company. And we can get into that. Or a lack of cultural fit. Or poorly structured transaction. So overpayment, bad payout, cultural clash. So that can happen, especially when you have very different culture and a lack either of due diligence, risk mitigation plan, and integration process, where those end up in value destruction instead of value creation. And well, the last category, the fourth is lack of true integration, which is also a whole topic by, by itself, where the company or the ones being acquired has not been, you know, uh, transitioned to the transformation of the company. You have people leaving or uh, there's never been a cultural integration and then no possible value creation. So with that, I'd like to ask you what have been your observation mm-hmm. in the m you've been part of and can you relate to some of the reasons why, to your view, some M&A film 
and uh, that resonate with you. So I, I remind bad fit, poorly structured transaction, cultural clash, or lack of true integration. Got it. So I just wrote it here, culture clash. Okay, so bad fit, culture clash. All right, so that's a tough one to just to summarize. So what is my experience from the work that I've done in terms of have the companies acquired added value as intended to the acquirer? Mm -hmm. I'd say with all the cases and everything, mostly it has, as your statistic says, it has gone to that 70% where the acquirer hasn't gotten the value that they wished for. Now, that doesn't mean that value wasn't added. There's a lot of value added to those who sold, uh, as well as the teams who were able to continue and, and so forth. So overall, like let's if we zoom back and look at the strategies in gaming and when do you do the acquisition, there's usually two different type of categories. The number one is where you're exploiting synergies. So those can be either you're acquiring a company that has a similar audience and then you do an audience arbitrage where you're monetizing that audience, for example, better. If, let's say, a puzzle company acquires a word company and in the word games, you can easily cross-promote to puzzle games and they make more money and you increase your portfolio and people understand that. So that is one of the, the ways of, of kind of increasing your audience. The other one is buying development expertise. So let's say you're a casino company like Playtica and you acquire a company like Wooga because you want to go more into casual games and you have a lot of expertise in in, in a social casino. It doesn't mean that that expertise really translates, but you see that you are in a very, very, very maturated space, mature space, and you see that you have some kind of audience affinity with casual games because a lot of female players and so forth and so forth. And then you're acquiring development expertise to go deeper into that category without having your own expertise or building your own expertise that could take years if you ever even reach it. And the scale bot like that those are exploiting synergies and the other one is exploiting scale or buying scale meaning you require a company to drive the top line revenue so basically the overall turn not necessarily profitability but you acquire a company that makes a lot of money even though the profitability might not be there but it's really contributing to the growth of revenue of your corporation as a whole and then for example buying a hyper casual developer i don't know how profitable they are anymore but there's a lot of revenue going as there's a lot of ads and so forth even the margins might be small and the other one in scale can be buying profitability so let's say you're a company like Wudu and you know your margins are getting smaller i don't know if Wudu's margins were getting smaller but you're entering into a casual scene where the margins are fatter even though their top line revenue is not there and you, when you combine those together and you look at the actual balance sheets and the statements it looks much better as a corporation as a whole it's a lot of revenue a lot of good profit and so forth so exploiting synergies and buying scale and kind of like being on, on the um on the acquirer side, those are usually the strategies. But in order to, to get there, it's been quite difficult for these companies because every time you're seeing an asset that is interesting and that is you know hot on the market or is performing well, shows a nice KPIs, you're never the only company that is bidding for that asset. And so a lot of the time, if you don't have that history of acquisitions, you're usually not on in on top of the list when acquiring unless you have a tremendous brand value so that you're like a supercell and you're coming in and you're acquiring then uh, a company might sell to you rather to others who might be paying more and vice versa if you have poor 
history of mergers and acquisitions where you have acquired and shuttered down studios or or been unable to to gain that value. Playtika is a good example in Helsinki, for example, with acquisition of two studios that that neither of them have, you know, one has been closed down, the other one hasn't has pretty declining numbers. So that, of course, painted a very negative picture when they were trying to acquire Rovio, where the company went on full defense, actually, in order to avoid being acquired by Platika and were able to sell to somebody else with a much more sustainable history of acquisitions. So in my experience, going to different cases, the challenges have been definitely on the side of making an acquisition too hastily. So in that has been in cases where there's a lot of bidders and whether, uh, you know, I'm not going to which role I played, I wasn't due diligence, but there was a lot of bidders and sort of a, the company got into really into this mode of let's close. And it goes from being very analytical to we need to win this case. And because you're fighting against somebody, you just need it. And then you start overlooking about different red flags and yellow flags because you, you're you really about closing. It's a project that is going for months and you've informed your board, you got the green light. And so it turns from let's analyze to let's just close the deal. So that is what often happens with people. And then the other one is, of course, post-merger integration. There's a lot of challenges with this. It's, I mean, you're, you're talking about getting people in, and it goes anywhere from the contracts that you signed um, to even the space that you get or what are you going to do with the company's brand. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times uh, you think that the work is done when the corporate development team exits the projects because they've closed it, all, all the papers have been signed, all the massive works has, has been done. But that's usually just the kickoff of the integration and making sure that they function great as a part of your holistic corporation. And usually the case is is that a much larger corporation acquires much smaller company and integrating that smaller company to be a part of something larger. It's again, it's like if you worked at a company where there's a hundred employees and you go to a company that has 10,000 employees, everything is going to change. And sometimes companies try to keep it, you know, separated, but sometimes they force the integration. And that always creates a challenge because the ways of working of changing and everything is like the reality comes in and you're now part of a corporation. And that is actually something that that many studios are not excited about, even though they might be excited about the products that the corporation produces. So those are those are kind of like on high level, the challenges that I've seen. Yeah, and it's a good overview because you've mentioned like several reasons why an acquisition happened, and it could be like for operational like uh, reasons, financial reasons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have also mentioned this case is not always intended is a human capital, at least from of course we call it human capital, but it's team and, and competencies. It's like it sounds very corporate human capital. But I would like to take a moment to look at the due diligence part because you mentioned something important where you have several bidders and you need to close the deal quickly and things happen. Actually, and I would even say maybe on the both sides, right? So on the acquirer side, you want to win the case. You have capital available. You want to whatever for your strategy portfolio and like own uh, the largest audience, whatever is the strategic plan. I wonder as well from what you've observed, how much is that rush happening on the seller side where you know you want to sell quickly? Because I wonder... On the seller side, have you observed you have the luxury to choose who is your acquirer based on who is going to guarantee your growth? And at some point, maybe you depend so much on money to grow and mm-hmm. survive that 
you take the options that are available and the best deal, right? So how much is that reality for seller? Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned all the cases. So in a hot case, in a hot case, meaning that the company is doing really well and they're in a segment when they're, where there's a lot of companies that are trying to get there. Let's say you're one of the first merge games, you've really scaled merge categories becoming hot. Now, everything merge related is very interesting. And you have a company that is, that is doing really well and kind of front runner, showing incredible retention numbers, all of that. Like then you'll have a lot of bidders. At that point, the power is on the seller side. But on the seller side, people always think about what it's the CEO that makes the call. No, it's the board that makes the call. And now you have to go in to understand what is the structure of that board and the cap table of that company? Who's really the one who's making the call? There are companies that where the, the CEO and others own majority of it, but then you're usually talking about Aquahire. So that might be a company that is bootstrapped, hasn't really raised capital, maybe has raised just a little bit of a capital. That happens, but the acquisition prices are never that high. And then, you know, the board, the CEO, the leadership team, the founders can make the call or decide whether they want to continue or move forward. That's usually the case with early venture backed companies where the venture capital will actually tell them, do not sell now. Let's go. We're in a great trajectory. So if you watch the Facebook movie, that's an example where they always try to acquire him early on and he, he continues and rather takes money from venture capitalists instead of selling his company early on. And then, of course, that is the, the play. And the more venture capitalists and those investors you get on your cap table, the less power you have to make. And, you know, at the, at the largest sides, you know, when, when the company is valued at multiple billions, the company is owned by the investors, majority of it. So it's not the CEO that sits mm. down and makes the call or the company takes a vote. Or do, do we join <laughs> Nintendo or do we go to PlayStation? Do we go to Xbox? Like that is not how, how these things work. It's the board that makes the decision. What are the other cases you have observed where you do have a say and you have the power or luxury to say no, because it may not be a fit or, you know, so I was reading about the, I think it was acquisition of Wise or some other companies by, you know, Google acquired them. And they kind of went through like what were all the stages because the Facebook was bidding back then. It was, I think it was Facebook and Google. It's kind of like a big deal. And what they had with the board is they put in a price tag of where they want to be at. Like, I think it was 600 million or whatever it was. People can read it on, online. And so they had an exit strategy. Again, like I've talked about this before, but having an exit strategy at all situations is very important because it makes you non-reactive. It makes you understanding of your current situation. You can you can update your exit strategy with every board meeting, let's say once quarterly, and you're then trailing towards your target. So your exit strategy might be, we're not do even talking to any acquirers at this point. We're going for this one. So as you get uh, connected, which you do always when you're no matter what company you are, the corporate development team will connect you. You could say not now because you have a clear exit strategy. Then if the market changes and your exit strategy changes, then then it might be that you start putting in a number, like what would be your number? And then you're going to work with multiple different acquirers to try to push towards that number. So there's there's plenty of cases. It really depends on what is the market? What is the market looking like? So for example, it could be Web3 in the beginning where it's super hot and everybody's very excited, or it could be Web3 currently where nobody wants to touch it. And you have to even change the point that you're not actually Web3, you're Web2.5 or mm-hmm. you know <laughs> whatever they come up with nonsense. And same with mobile, like mobile was very hot in 2019, 2020, 21 was already very challenging, 22 very challenging, 23 extremely challenging, but there's not a lot of acquirers on the market. 
a lot of have been consolidated, and also the future of mobile and the growth is very bit unclear. So the acquirers are unclear of what they want to do, and at those points, the exit criteria might change, mm-hmm. and as as they always do. So I would say it's highly dependent on the situation, and to be non-reactive, you have to have an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. I like that. Whether you are on the acquirer side and you're part of a management team, or mm-hmm. on the seller side, having always like the part of ownership you can have is having your exact strategy. Why? What? What makes a good exit for you, and why? Again, back to your why, especially as a founder, right? Yeah. yeah. So that is a very good question because the more money you raise, especially with VC funds, and especially during the super hot years of 2020, 2021, 20. You know, to some extent, 2022, but especially 2020 and 21, the valuations went so high up. And it's very difficult for companies to sell at those valuations that they have raised against. And it's, and if you're a VC, again, this is something where I, which is, I need a little bit more math and a little bit more thinking, but, but normally the VCs don't really get a good return on their fund, like let's say you've raised 100 million, you have to return more than 100 million, a lot more than 100 million. If you start selling your companies off for tens of millions and your share of that might be 15% and so forth, that's not a very strong strategy. You have to go for selling that one company for 1 billion and you've returned your fund and more. And of that more, you actually get your carry, which could be 20, 30% of that and the partners get it and you become, you know, you get many millions. So, so your incentives are in incredibly high valuation and you really are looking for one great deal. If you get two, that is going to make your next two funds. And from the company side, you'd be probably very happy with the modest return because that's going to make the, first of all, make sure that the company is going to stay for a long time. Its future is quite often secured. And then, yes, as a shareholder of the company, you're going to get a nice return of your effort as a founder because we're talking about, you know, multi-hundred, if let's say the, the value of company doubles, triples, quadruples, which is quite modest in the startups phases or even, you know, tenfold would be nice. That, that's great for you, but it's a loss for the VC. Not necessarily a loss, but it, you know, for them, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. And they've essentially lost one of the bullets of that portfolio because every fund has X amount of investments. And now they have one investment less that can return the fund or contribute significantly to returning the fund. And so these type of uh, elements are at play when you are talking about selling the company. And that's where the negotiation becomes quite difficult because as an acquirer, you might have a certain type of a return target. And as a VC, you might have a lot bigger return target. And, and if those don't match, that's the often the case where the, the conversations are not even moving forward. Now, again, if you have an exit strategy that you discuss with your board and you all align on where the market is and how the market mm-hmm. is looking and so forth, that can help you with an acquisition cases. Another thing that will help you significantly if you understand which fund you are in with the VCs. So let's say you are one of your or a few of your VCs or a couple of early VCs are having a smaller funds. Like we're not talking about Sequoias or the A16Cs of the world that have a 1 billion gaming fund, which they have to return <laughs> at, at, at multiples. Let's say you are a part of a smaller couple of gaming funds, that which fund sizes, the ones that you are like fund one, fund two, anyone has multiple funds, you're a part of a fund that is $20 million. 
then returning that, if you return them three, four, five, that's not going to be that bad compared to if you are a $1 billion fund Mm -hmm. and you return 5 million to the fund, it's like, why did we waste even this time? Mm. So that is a very important thing to understand. And as you're talking to different investors, as you're bringing them along at different phases, does it make sense for you to take A16Z in the beginning? Well, of course, they're a fantastic fund, all the resources and so forth. But keep in mind, once you take them, the exit has moved way, 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 way up in the in the future and has to basically, you have to knock it out of the park twofold in order for you to sell mm. at some point. That's very uh, good thoughts. From a point of view of founder, having talked to quite many founders now, uh, raising or thinking to start a company, I think it's a very important point, like thinking already by that time, how would you exit and what kind of funding are you looking for? Because those are... Funding is like, it should have a purpose, right? Why do you want to raise or why would you want to bootstrap? Which fund and the nature of the fund or the expectation of return should you mm-hmm. look for? Because where I've seen the mismatch sometimes is also companies, small studios wanting to make the game and not really wanting to have a money conversation and the reality of a money conversation. And I mm-hmm. think this is where there's a mismatch as well for employees uh, at the studio level, not understanding that part, but it's not an independent studio making the games of it of a dream. It, it is with an expected return. So I think the financial part is one that I've, I've found for some reason, maybe it's just from my perspective, one that is not that transparent, you know, where we would talk about openly about it at a startup level where it's the reality of a business. And if we are in to make a game that has, I don't know, game or revenue that can generate 10x within the three to four years, it's a, it's a very different way of building a company than a lifestyle business where we keep doing what we want to do. And maybe after 10 years, we start to make, you know, this is a very different type of business. Is this something you've seen as well from talking to several companies, like early, early stage? Early stage, it, it depends. If, mm-hmm. if you're talking about an early stage company with a very limited amount of employees, where a lot of them are founders, they're very, very interested in these topics. Like even Deconstructor Fund audience, the number one and the number two titles are founder, and the second one is co-founder, and third mm-hmm. one is actually CEO. So these people are very interested in the business side of games. Whether you're an artist or a programmer, they are very keen because suddenly their own interest you know, their own financial interest is tied to the financial interest of the company. But when you start scaling up and, you know, you get to that 10, 20, 15, 50 people, they're absolutely clueless about the business side of the games and not interested. Not that they're stupid or or unintelligent. They're just not interested. And they are joining your company to build something cool, something great. And talking about money for them makes you feel like a corporation or anything Mm -hmm. else. So that's why you, you tend to you, you kind of have to have these two different cultures. One is for the executives uh, to talk about those uh, important financial topics that make the, uh, the the company run. And one is for the employees where we're talking about the products, the culture, and, and, and all those aspects. They, they're not mutually exclusive. Neither of them is more important than the other. Everything, every company needs all elements of it. But I do comment quite a lot on LinkedIn where a lot of first-time founders and people running small teams are talking about transparency, how they, you know, tell everything to their team and, and how they are like such a such a gelled little team. And that works in the beginning, but that doesn't scale. You're going to get mm-hmm. people who are very confused. And in the end, uh, if you're not like, 
some people will have more, the founders will have significantly more ownership of the company. People who come in earlier will have significantly more ownership uh, in the company and will make much, much more money than those that come in later. So if you're Facebook employee number 100 versus Facebook employee number 1000 or not 1000, let's say 10,000, mm -hmm. the amount you would make is exponentially larger, not depending on your title. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a point of reflection for me as well, like how much you share transparently. And maybe that leads a bit also to the topic of integration, because I don't think you can separate both where you have a conversation in executive rooms and make decisions that for the financial, like whether you sell the company or after mm -hmm. you sold their expectations. And then suddenly you change your pivot, your strategy, or you go to your market that it was not the initial vision. Mm -hmm. Because you are dependent of, you know, your owner suddenly and not uh, explaining fully. I, I don't know if fully is necessary, but the context of why, uh, I think this is the tricky part where people join for a reason A and then along the way it's like, well, it moved to C and then the trust is broken because I can't trust whatever the management is saying because it's not exactly what was announced initially, but yeah. the reason why it is, is like you have those calibration and those conversations that happen all the time. Right. Yeah. So if these type of things happen, so when these type of things happen, we're talking about company pivots. Let's say a good example of a pivot is a company called Hammer and Chisel. Well, they pivoted to this chat app called Discord. They were making a MOBA and actually made a MOBA with all the community and everything. And I was playing it. I remember it was called Fates Forever. I even have a deconstruction on Deconstructor of Fun. I liked it quite a lot. Didn't launch globally. It was in soft launch. And they were like, yeah, we're not really good at this MOBA thing. Let's pivot to something that they have done for the game, which was voice chat and, and community building, and that became Discord. And so I'm sure that a lot of people left. Oh, I came here to make a MOBA, and now we're this stupid chat app? Like, this is totally different. And if they left, good for them or not. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, if they left, then there's two reasons. One is what you want to do is not anymore what the company is doing. That's a great breakup. That is a very natural way to move forward. We've grown apart. The other part, which is sad one, is if the company wanted you to stay, but you left, and it wasn't that the company, like then, then the, I think the reason is that the, the company and the leadership wasn't able to sell you this new vision. So at all the time, the reason why you're pivoting is very often, not always, but almost exclusively driven by market realities and understanding and analyzing what mm -hmm. you're doing, what you have resources for. So you're making a conscious decision. Nobody goes into a board meeting and just walks out like, hey, that was a great idea. We're going to pivot the whole company. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of thought, a lot of, uh, a lot of work done and a very concrete reason, usually a path towards bankruptcy with a, with a current set or a path towards possibly new growth and new investment. And you have to tell that exact same story. What led you to make that very big decision of pivoting, even changing the name of the company and the products that you make? What is the reason for it? If you're doing these pivots every, every quarter, choosing a new category of games, that is probably not the best way. But if you're making one pivot and it's very meticulous, well thought out, there's a clear reason for it. You present that same reason to everybody. And if those mm -hmm. people who decide to leave, it's good that they leave because they shouldn't be here if they don't want to be doing this because this is totally different what they came in here for. And some people would say, hey, I love this company. I enjoy working here. I think this new direction is very interesting. And MOBAs was fun. We never made it. Let's do this. This sounds pretty awesome too. Yeah. And that's an example of a company change where 
again, you start with uh, leadership and from the management, you own the decision, explain. So there's still the responsibility of explaining and, and communicating and also leaving the decision, accepting that it will not be for everyone. And I'd like to link that to our conversation today on, you know, like the whole process where you started to acquire. Let's assume you have done your somewhat due diligence and also another problem I see with going rushing the decision, you haven't done a proper due diligence, right? So where I see maybe a lack of, I don't know if it's conversation or uh, going in depth, and I don't know if it's true in games from what you've experienced, is again, testing the strategic plan and the fit. So we are acquiring you to do this. So there's an alignment mm -hmm. on the vision after the acquisition. This is what you're going to do. And is it's going really to match the plan. And this is what how we will structure the team or uh, the people intermediary to work together, right? Because that's kind of a, from the course as well, is there's a whole team involved in not only integrating, but discussing how you will integrate and middle management to be the intermediary through the over process and there will be change. So everyone is aware that there will be change. Even the management might change and the company vision is changing and it's a process that takes one to three years actually to communicate, take the steps toward that. Have you seen that amount of diligence and discipline to do that? Or this is just like, you know, it's improvising games. No. So it may seem that there's a lot of improvisation because of the high failure rate. But in all of my experience, the amount of due diligence is very extensive, long lasting and, and professional. And your question is a little bit like what I was thinking is like, how much dating you need to do in order <laughs> to make sure that this marriage lasts forever? <laughs> it's just like, well, I don't know. Like some people fall in love really quickly and they stay happily forever after. Some people date for five years, get married and get divorced after one. So, <laughs> so it's, we're talking about people, even yes. though there's business involved in the end, we're talking about people. Again, going back to my experiences, there's overly long due diligence process that can last up like longer than a year. That is not smart. That is a lot of waste of resources when it gets that long. I've seen acquisitions go in as fast as one week. That is quite rushed. But usually those are the hot cases that are driven by the growth in the market. And you're making a lot of concessions to the seller, basically saying, hey, you can stay independent. You can do this. You can do that. We just want this business unit to be a part of our corporation. Do what you do. We're not going to even touch it because what you do seems perfect. Let's just put it under this company structure and, and continue doing what you do. And these are the money for your investors and these are your payments. And if you hit your targets, these are going to be the extra payments and so forth. So, so that is that is one option. But usually everything in the middle, it just takes an extensive amount of time. Corporate development teams, when they work in mergers acquisition, they have a very long list of elements that they need to present because they will be presenting ultimately to the board. Nothing is done hastily. Every point is calculated, but a lot of it is about future projections and what this case would be looking like because you're trying to show this value. If you're trying to show the value through EBITDA or through revenue, it's quite easy to just show this is what the revenue is going to continue. This is what the revenue of the market is going to continue. These are what the consultants are saying as revenue is going to grow for this market segment. So you've got the new zoos, you've got the deconstructor fund possibly telling you about the other growth of different mer markets and how we're going to look in five years. Same thing with EBITDA. 
EBITDA, you're looking at the cost structure of the company, you're seeing where you can maybe shave off a little bit by centralizing certain services. And, you know, again, looking at how mature this market, how much they're going to scale, maybe projecting one or two games that are going to come in, how much they're going to do. But those are easy ones. But when you're talking about exploiting synergies of like audience arbitraging or especially buying development expertise, or what you mentioned earlier is making these early bets. So acquiring startups or companies in a very young phase where you're acquiring at a very low price, but with a promise of future value creation, aka aqua hire. Those are, you know, the smaller the bet, the higher the risk. That's that's how it tends to go. And yeah, the short answer is every merger, every M&A and corporate development team that I've worked with or along with has been very professional. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the assessment on the culture fit and management part. What have you seen have been done there? Because an interesting part I read about was really where you have a mapping of a two culture of a culture of an acquirer mm-hmm. and even like not just the management, but the company mm-hmm. and the culture of the one being acquired. And then you have a risk mitigation plan going through and like, it could be very uh, in depth. Like how do we make decisions? How do we communicate and how do we build trust? Have, have you gone that far? Like when we look at pure people aspect and management match, basically yeah. leadership uh, match. Yes. So that is where the biggest weaknesses appear. Because when you're talking about big deals, like we're not talking about aqua hires, we're talking about legit big deals. That means, especially with public companies, that means the information of these negotiations will not be given to the employees. So you're, and only a very small group is informed about these negotiations being ongoing. Not even all the investors will be informed about this, only the board. At that point, when you're making um, you know, conversations about ways of working, who are you talking to? Like your t- corporate development teams and executives are talking to other executives from other company. They're not on the ground floor level. They are on the up- upper echelon of that company. Let's say Scopely, for example, and you're interviewing the, the, the co-CEOs of Scopely and their COO and so forth. They, they're not, they're not there, you know, coding on Monopoly Go. So, <laughs> so of course they know what's going on, but they're, but the culture that they will tell you about is the culture that they wrote on their pages. There might be chief uh, people officer coming in explaining what their culture is like. And then the, on the other side, there's usually corporate development people uh, who are also not even part of the studio structures, are also saying, ticking the boxes, does this go along with the corporate culture that is on our webpage? Yeah. Pretty much so. I, I luck. So you have autonomy. We have independency. That's pretty good. We can work from there. <laughs> <laughs> and that tends to, to happen quite a lot as like the top floor is talking to each other. The other part that I've enjoyed and, and what I've tried to do in, in my own cases is if any way possible, as we're getting to the, the final stages of like, yes, this is going through, assuming, you know, last last pieces then taking the risk and actually telling the team that this is happening, this is ongoing conversation, not this is happening, that this is the ongoing conversation. We don't know if it's going to happen or not, but we would like you to meet with the acquirer, go for a lunch, sit down, and then tell the acquirer that in order to reduce this risk of post-merger integration or a culture clash, anyone here, anyone on the list, 
go out, talk to anybody in the studio. It's you're, you're free. Ask them anything. We won't be in the room. That is the way that that I like to that I enjoyed when being on the acquire side, and that I did being on the seller side as well, because it just gives you the the free access to to ask anything, and and you feel that nothing is is hidden as it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand like the level of discretion that is, and I really don't have any answer, but I've yeah. been thinking a lot about it because I think what happens after the acquisition and integration. I would not buy any company saying nothing would change because something I have experienced is always change. Even when a company goes public, it changes in so many ways. And I think being proactive about it and communicating proactively about it will reduce exactly the risk of losing, you know, the key people who were part of the acquisition. Because at the end of the day, it's about team and people, you know, you've been acquired for a value for a reason or something you have created or the promise of what you will create. And also having also more honest conversation, if there's a mismatch, what do we do about it? A risk mitigation plan. And I've seen cases where there's open conversation if should the, all the founders be still in the management after the acquisition? Or do we have an exit strategy for the people to compensate them for where, have they, where they brought the company? But let's make a plan and phase out to hire you know someone to replace for the good of the company. So I like maybe for the last minutes we have today to share some thoughts of what do you see could uh, be done like reasonably more in the space. I share like some of those thoughts like where I wish we could have more of this conversation. What other initiatives or thoughts we could have through the process, either through due diligence or post-integration to mitigate those risk of the people risk basically or culture risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so involving people who are in development is very important and that you know that that's something that not always happens because the people in development are not on the uh, on the highest totem pole um talking about the post-merger integration process that that's a very big process it really depends on the size of the company and the deal structure that is being made so if we're talking about a sort of a, like a an acquisition of Scopely, for example, a multi multi billion dollar. I think it was five point two or something like that. I would assume that they're running quite independently, and there's not a lot of interference from Savvy Games Group in how they run. Of course, the financial targets and all that, and on a very high strategic level, there will be they're pushing for AAA or whatnot, like off mobile, etc. But when you're acquiring a small company, like for example, I've been at Rovio when we acquired a studio. That was essentially an aqua hire from Helsinki. We really didn't talk about the uh, post-mergers acquisition. We talked briefly about it, but then the decision was kind of made on the fly that, hey, instead of you having this own office space in the middle of Helsinki, we're just going to move you all here to to the suburbs where the uh, office of Rovio is. And even though that sounds like a very smart business decision and it's not that big of a deal, it was actually quite huge of a deal for those who were there for several years and built their really cozy studio that they really enjoyed working at and making their own brewed coffee and having their own whiskey tastings and stuff like that. Like small routines, cultures, and traditions that they had. Exactly. And the restaurants that they enjoyed around them, which didn't exist in the suburbs. Those small (laughs) things actually affected tremendously because the people who joined the new corporation, for them, if you say like, hey, this is better because we have all these perks and it's a safe place to work, in terms of like the future of the company, they're like, cool, but I can go anywhere. And it's like, 
you know, that, that's not the reason. I enjoyed actually being there with a little bit of smaller salary, but much cozier feeling where I was close to my colleagues. And this all has evaporated. And the increase of salary by 200, 300 euros a month is kind of non-existent to me. And so there's a lot of misalignment in how management thinks about people making their decisions versus how people really make their decisions as people. Mm-hmm. To Just to kind of like summarize, so I would involve more people from the development side to do risk it if possible. Often it isn't with the larger deals. And I would definitely involve consultants more because oftentimes there's a sponsor for the deal, the sponsor from the corporation side. And the whole success of that acquisition for the first years will be tied in that sponsor. It could be head of a division. It could be a head of a studio. It could be somebody who takes over this acquisition and acts as the champion of this acquisition. And the biggest risk that you have is involved around that sponsor. What is the sponsor's position in the corporation? If the sponsor leaves that corporation, you will not have a sponsor anymore. And if you haven't built news or have integrated far enough, you will be at danger because the sponsor has left. There's countless examples of this. And those are very sort of a like human or like case by case type of a situations uh, where you have to make sure that, that the sponsor of this case has a a long tenure in the company and strong standing where you can believe that this is the sort of a bedrock you can tie yourself to. That will be the case. And then final one is like use consultants. It's it's imperative. I've been in so many cases where, you know, consultants as, as Deconstructor Fund, for example, didn't help to sway the opinion. Sometimes they were just of the opinion that this makes sense and they're going to do it. But it definitely added that another perspective on the deal where somebody comes in, they don't have to make this deal. When you're paying a consultant, they're not tied to whether this deal goes through or not. They can say, hey, this, these are a lot of red flags. You know, and when they ask you like, would you go through it? You'd say, no, because of one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. And that might change the sort of a a crazy dynamic and push it to the side of if if it's even split of whether we're going to go in or not, that can sway towards a more more of a balanced decision-making. Because again, being in multiple different cases from tens, from, from hundreds of thousands to hundreds of millions and even billions, actually, yeah, that didn't go through. I've been seeing that when the company wants to acquire somebody, they will start seeing everything in positive lights and they will try to make cases of why this acquisition should go through. Mm-hmm. rather than why this shouldn't go through. And it's very important to constantly have even like a third person there to say like, hey, I know we're thinking about this way of thinking. Let's take the opposite stance. And maybe you take the one who's most bullish and ask them to take a stance to be against it. And the one who's most against it, now you take the bullish stance. And let's now have this discussion again mm-hmm. to kind of use these type of a tactics. And it's quite interesting because then you start finding the the middle lane and once everybody, like the, the end result, whether you acquire a company or not, the end result has to be that you know exactly the risks, you know exactly where you're getting into, you know exactly why you're getting into, and now you can execute against the strategy rather than somebody individually wanted to make this acquisition or somebody individually wanted to not make this acquisition. So that's where I'm kind of at the end of Thank you. Very good thoughts. And we're reaching also the end for today. Yeah. I'm sure there will be more, especially on the PMI part. 
But you know, you covered uh, like one of the key reasons that I didn't mention at the beginning, like that I tried to summarize, which is a human bias and personal motive. And it's easy to fall into this exactly where you have either a sponsor or somebody who's like leading the initiative for the acquisition. And the a very effective way is to bring in people who have no skin in the game to have this acquisition go through and to have more neutral objective feedback of yeah. are you doing this acquisition for the right reason? And have you looked really into the all the, I would say, the risk that could destroy the value of what you're buying? Because at, at the end of the day, you can either negotiate the value up or down based on what you discover, right? So having an objective acquisition, but humans get in the way and bias, as you shared, and maybe that's kind of a point of reflection for today for this conversation, like no person alone can go through this kind of deal being fully objective. It's really hard. Yeah, I, I would say like the human side is so important because the if you look at the, you know, the like let's say Chris Petrovic, who's like one of the best in, in this corporate development, during his time, the acquisitions that Zynga made from Graham Games to Peak Games to Small Giant and Rolik, when you talk to him, like you, you know, even now, like when we do an event in Deconstructor, uh, Deconstructor Fund in Istanbul, he still meets up with the founders whose companies he's acquired because it's not that he met them when the acquisition was happening. He actually met them for years and he developed relationships with these people in these companies. And that is, that is the human aspect of it because, you know, with the best cases, like you have to have that relationship with the founders for a long time before you actually pull the trigger. Because when the time comes and they're ready to sell, there will be most likely a lot of different acquirers. And if you have built relationship, if they trust you, if they know you, you will be able to get that deal often by a lot cheaper. So his individual value, again, I don't know, I don't know the deals, I don't know the other bidders, but some, but oftentimes when we're talking about corporate development guys and and ladies who are really like boiling the ocean, meeting with everybody, creating these lasting relationships and friendships with, with these people, they are worth of tens of millions of dollars because when, when they will sign, they will they will take tens of millions of dollars less by joining the company where they know the, the people, where they have met and when they have been talking for years in advance. And that's very important to remember. And that is the value of like the, the direct value of great corporate development people. Yeah. Well, we'll close with thoughts on the human uh, aspect and follow up in future conversation. Well, thanks a lot, Mishka, for sharing your experience. No. And note for myself, I tried to get to uh, Chris as a contrast of his conversation today, <laughs> as someone who's been really involved in MA and having also solid theories about yeah, how to play the long-term game of you know acquisition yes. and growth. I finished up with the mental note or strategy that I got from a person and I, I used it ever since, not for very long, but for several years. And he said, the name of the game is who can make most friends. That was what he kind of said when I asked about that person's company being acquired. And as you're asking kind of like, sometimes these doesn't make sense and like why and so forth. There's something that I'm not seeing. What is the number? It's like, who has the most friends? And if you are in the category of your friends and your net worth is your network, that is, those are all the elements because you'll be on top of the list all the time. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, thanks a lot, Mishka, for sharing. And good to have you on board again and looking forward to your future <laughs> hot topic. All right. Take care. Thank you, everybody. And as always, five stars for Sophie, whether <laughs> whatever platform you're using. Like and share and join Sophie's Rise and Play Slack group with a lot of people who want to 
learn about interesting things. I don't know how you join it, but maybe if you sign up for the newsletter on Rise and Play uh, website, you'll be able to join the Slack channel. <laughs> yes. You are a speaker on the podcast. That's how it works. Yeah. Or you're a speaker on the podcast. So get on the <laughs> podcast and join the Slack group and, and get all the uh, secret information on the Slack group. So <laughs> thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Sophie, for the questions, even though I was supposed to ask the questions. But thank you for hosting. <laughs> thank you. Take care. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io And there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time. <laughs>